0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: What does Prime Minister Theresa May's call for a snap election mean for Brexit, the UK economy and even the future of Europe? Can President Donald Trump's exhortation to buy American and hire American really work? And how has Goldman Sachs gone from Wall Street's top firm to its laggard outlier? These are the topics we'll be discussing this week on The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. British Prime Minister Theresa May surprised everyone from the markets to her own party and even possibly herself this week by pushing for a general election three years earlier than legally necessary. Britain's exit from the European Union, of course, looms over the entire political process. Joining us from London to discuss the political and economic implications of the snap poll is our global economics editor, Peter Tal Larson. Peter, thanks for coming on the show again. Great to have you on. Thank you for having me. So um, let's start off with the big question. Is this the opportunity that the pro-EU campaigners have been waiting for? Is this voting for Brexit all over again? Uh, It could be. Um, There's definitely a a movement
2: afoot to try and make this sort of almost another referendum. I mean, the the whole idea of actually having another referendum, I think, would make a lot of people's hearts sink. But um, uh, Theresa May is kind of, in announcing the election, she framed this as something that she needed to do in order to give herself a stronger negotiating position as she tries to uh, finalise the terms of Brexit. Other people have sort of seized on that and said, well, in that case if you are opposed to brexit or you want a soft you want to ensure a sort of the softest possible brexit then how do you vote you and who do you vote for so so the the, the dividing lines are uh, are taking shape but then again, this is also a regular election. And um, it is also likely that other issues will come to the fore, issues about tax, uh, health service, education, the usual sort of, um, usual election topics. And so one of the things that will be interesting to see is whether people change their voting, their historical, political voting patterns to reflect the Brexit split, or whether they revert back to type and, and vote for the parties that they used to vote for.
1: Now let's, let's just step back a bit um, for our... Uh overseas listeners who, who don't necessarily know the structure of UK politics. Why is it that she feels that she needs a stronger hand? What, what Can you just run us through, for example, the position she's in, how she got the position of prime minister and how that plays into um, how she's thought about the election?
2: Well, I mean, it, yeah, and you have to think separate what she says versus what we actually think is going on. Of course. But but just to recap, I mean, um, she was uh, the Home Secretary in the government before the uh, the Brexit referendum. And obviously, when the government lost that referendum, then David Cameron stepped down, you then had a kind of messy, chaotic period where various people tried to stand for the leadership. And she kind of emerged as the sort of cool headed, sensible person from all of this and became Prime Minister. But obviously, she did so in such a way that she never actually had to contest an election as the leader of the party, and to a certain extent also felt bound by the manifesto of, of, of the previous government, which was adopted in 2015, uh, and so hasn't really got a manifesto of her own that sort of reflects the changed circumstances of the UK. So I think that's probably a factor in terms of her seeking a, a mandate of her own. Um, uh there is also um a more practical consideration which is that the conservative party are way ahead in the in the opinion polls uh, on some measures they're 20 percentage points ahead of the labor party their main rivals. So, you know, now seems a good time to call an election. And I th- the other the other argument that uh, Theresa May used was that, you know, she's got a, a majority at the moment of about 17, and that she could, you know, that there are people in Westminster who are trying to sabotage the Brexit negotiations, and that she needs a, a stronger mandate in order to be able to go into those those negotiations with full confidence. Sa-
1: sabotage, in, in what way? Are we, are we talking people who are pro-Europe or who really want um, the negotiations to basically Britain out completely.
2: There are definitely some people in Westminster who are hoping that they can try to um sort of at least limit the damage from Brexit. I think it's probably too late. I mean the, the process has been triggered and is underway. Um and it's hard to see how that stops now, but but you can still hope to try and have some sort of process where um you know the kind of the, the worst outcomes are avoided. And then of course there are also there are sort of hard Anti-Europeans in the in the government who say actually this negotiation is pointless. Uh, we just need to get out in in any way we can and and take it from there. So I think in order to kind of to head off both those extremes, she feels that she needs to uh, to get her own mandate. And I think there is probably also a recognition, although this is nobody's admitted this, that you know. Things are not going to get as easy as they are now, so they have this you know the economy has actually done reasonably well uh, sort of defying the expectations of gloom that followed the referendum or that preceded the referendum vote. Um, but there is also this sense that things are going to get tougher as the actual exit date approaches. Um, the opposition is probably unlikely to continue to be quite so weak and ineffective as they are now so there is also a feeling that she's kind of you know her political stock is is as high as it's ever going to get and she needs to cash in while she can
3: why and how can she call an election now
2: well this is the uh the, the, the beauty of the british system basically it's up to the government of the day they can dissolve parliament and call an election whenever it suits them actually the british had changed that so in 2010 uh when we had this coalition with the uh, the liberal democrats they, one of the things they did as part of that coalition was they passed an act which said that Parliament should sit for a fixed five-year term and made it kind of difficult, theoretically, to get around that.
1: Yeah, just, just a button there, Peter, I think before that, that came in, the term was, was five years at most, wasn't it? And the Prime Minister exactly. could call an election whenever he or she wanted
2: Exactly, that's right. So, um, so that that our act basically fixed the term at five years, and that was for the for the term for the, so from twenty ten to twenty fifteen, uh, they went the full term, and then they had the election on the uh, on the sort of the date as planned. You know, one of the reasons that people thought Theresa May might not call an election is that actually it was unclear how complicated it was going to be to circumvent that act and to call an election early. But actually, in retrospect, it seems what she's done is pretty straightforward. She basically, the government introduced a bill in the House that said, we want to have an election in order to kind of override the five-year rule they need to have two-thirds majority of the House to do that, which they got in that vote, because basically they threw down the gauntlet to the opposition parties and said, we want to have an election. You know, Are you going to stand in the way of us having an election? Of course, no party really wants to be the one that, that kind of is seen to be denying the people the opportunity to vote so um actually that f- there's now some debate about that fixed term act uh, that it's really sort of it's a bit pointless now because it 's been shown to be toothless and might just get repealed so I think we're probably back in the system where governments can the sitting governments can call elections whenever they want
3: what are her chances of getting reelected I mean is there it seems like they're pretty strong, but are is there any chance that her party could lose i mean is just kind of given Everything that's been going on the past year and just how things have been swinging, is that even a concern or worry, or is it just a matter of how many votes she will garner at this point?
2: I think at the moment the question is how much a bigger majority is she going to get. The working majority is 17 seats, which is not very much. There are numbers flying around that say the Conservatives could end up with a majority of 100 or more. The Labour Party is very unpopular. Okay. And Britain has this system of constituencies which basically favours a two-party system. And when the second party, the Labour Party, is sort of weak and in disarray, as it is at the moment, and very trailing a long way in the polls, Um, that really plays to the advantage of the other big party. Now... One interesting question, though, is whether this dynamic could change as a result of Brexit. So one possibility that people have been contemplating is that the Liberal Democrats, who are traditionally sort of the third party in British politics and and have never quite got as many seats as their share of the vote would suggest, that they might mount a bit of a resurgence by appealing to the pro-European voters who feel somewhat um, uh, left behind. By both Labour and by the Conservatives. So that's going to be the interesting dynamic to watch. But I mean, I think at the moment, the assumption is that if Theresa May doesn't emerge from this with a substantially increased majority, then this whole exercise will be seen to have been a massive failure.
1: Let's move on to the market reaction. Now, we, we have at Breaking Views, our, our Brexit index, which as a result of the election being called went to its highest level, basically since, since the referendum last June, um, which implies... I think, as I I read it correctly, that the markets believe there will be a softer Brexit as a result of this election. Is that how to read it?
2: Yeah, that's right. So this index is basically something we've put together, which is it it, it combines uh, uh, currency movements, it combines bond prices, share prices, and various other things, and tries to sort of provide some sort of gauge of how hard or soft the market is, uh, is viewing Brexit. And so a higher uh, reading on the index suggests a softer Brexit, and, a, and a, a lower reading suggests a harder Brexit. And you're right; I think the, uh, the, the uh, yesterday, uh, the, the day of the announcement of the um, the election, uh, the index went to its second highest level since the the, the referendum back in June uh, 2016, um, which indicates that you know the the market reaction to this announcement was, oh, this is good because it means we're likely to have a softer Brexit. So the thinking there is that. Theresa May gets a bigger majority, she has more clout, she can afford to ignore some of the sort of the rabid anti Europeans in her party who might otherwise have held her hostage. And also, she buys herself a bit of time on those negotiations. So the previous dynamic was that the negotiations were going to be supposed to complete in in the spring of 2019, and then she was going to have an election in 2020. Um, this way, she potentially gets to extend the, the, the push the next election to 2022, um, which means that she can potentially she can potentially um, have a slightly more uh, uh, kind of finessed negotiation and not be thinking about running a campaign at the same time as the negotiations are being finalised. That 's one interpretation the other interpretation, of course, is that if she comes out with a bigger majority, she can also more easily ignore the um, the pro Europeans in her party and push for a more uh, push for a harder Brexit. I mean, the fact is we don't really know what it is that Theresa want, May wants from this process. Um, and one of the interesting things about this campaign is that it will at least force her to be a bit more specific about what her priorities are going to be in the negotiation. Uh, does she, you know, Is she trying to push for special trade deals uh, with the EU? Is she willing to make some concessions on immigration or on, on, on paying some kind of divorce fee or other things? So uh, Theresa May has been very vague about all of that so far. Saying she's, she doesn't want to reveal her hand in the negotiations. Well, this election process over the next six, seven weeks is going to force her to be more specific about that. And that will give markets a bit more of an indication of whether they're right to expect a softer Brexit or whether actually it might, it might be going the other way.
1: Does she really have to uh, be forced into giving more information? I mean, I, I think on, on the one hand, she's been coy all the way through. On the other hand, I look at someone like. Donald Trump, the president here, who during his election campaign, uh, apart from you know, being rude about various things and people, really didn't say much other than, I have a plan to fix you know, X, Y, Z. So I mean, what's really going to force her to do it? She's not going to go. She's apparently refused to go on any TV debates. So how is she really going to be pressured into, into showing any of her hand?
2: Well, there is this tradition in British politics of producing fairly detailed manifestos for, by the parties to set out their plans. For, for government and um, so there is an expectation at least that the Conservatives will have to say something about uh, what they plan to do if they get reelected and and that obviously includes some sort of manifesto for brexit but you 're right i mean it is possible that she will uh, avoid having a specific debate about those issues uh, with her opponents and and try to sort of control that message and and, and be as vague as possible i mean partly uh, from, from the point of view of the negotiations, but partly also to avoid exacerbating the tensions that exist within her own party. I mean, there are people who have very different views about what the Brexit process should be like in the Conservative Party, and, and, and anything she does to sort of uh, lean one way or the other risks upsetting different wings of her party. So it's possible she would try to be vague on that, but I think you know, the, the point of an election process is you do get a bit more Information and a bit more of a feel uh, for what people are prepared to rule in or rule out. Um, and that's something that investors will be watching pretty closely.
3: Um, Peter, before we let you go, um, I, I think one thing that I'm kind of curious about is what is the EU? Like, what's the consensus? among members of the EU in terms of how they want to negotiate with uh, Great Britain to exit. Do you think that they're going to allow more negotiations, kind of a a softer way around it? Or are they set in their own ways? Like, what about the other side of the table?
2: Well, I think it's a very good question, and it's one that's often forgotten in the the UK debate. UK debate sort of tends to revolve around what the British position is and, and doesn't really take account of what's going on on the other side of the table. I think, to be honest, I, I'm not sure that calling the election changes the dynamic that much. I mean, there is possibly a bit of a an issue if if, if Theresa May urges, uh, emerges with a bigger majority and, you know, and is then guaranteed to be around until 2022. Um, that might give the, the other EU countries a bit more confidence in terms of in terms of having a straightforward negotiation. But to be honest, um, you know, the EU countries have their own positions, some things they agree on. There are different countries who then have different views about how things should be handled. Uh, to be honest, none of that is really going to become properly clear until we know who the next French president is and who is going to be in charge in Germany. And you know, the French presidential election will be started over the, over the coming weeks. Uh, the German election will have to wait until uh, the fall. So um, actually, that's all going to remain quite unclear. But once that happens, I, I don't think the British election actually has that much bearing on the negotiating position of the EU. I think really the only thing it affects is, is Theresa May's ability to force through whatever her agenda is against possible opposition within her own party.
1: OK, Peter, thanks very much for coming on. that has been very enlightening, and I'm sure during the campaign we'll have you back to talk about what's going on back in Blighty. Thanks again. Thanks, Peter. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.
3: Earlier this week, President Donald Trump signed an executive order to buy American, to hire American, to make America. Basically, any sort of government project would need to have American-made steel. This is something that's been around for decades, but Donald Trump is trying to tighten the loopholes that basically existed for several decades. Joining us here in Washington, D.C. is our Breaking Views columnist, Gina Chan. Gina, welcome back to the program.
0: Thanks for
3: having me. Why don't you take us through this? This is something that's been on the books for a while, but it's it's kind of a complicated thing, right? So if you have a government project, if the government's going to go out and, and contract, say, uh, a pipeline, for example, that they they are under the, the rule that they have to go and buy American-made steel. But there are lots of ways that um, companies and firms could get around this. And Trump is trying to basically say, wait a minute, we need to tighten this rule to really make it truly an American material.
0: Yeah, this basically fits in with his campaign pledge for America first, focusing on promoting um, U.S. companies and, and jobs. And he said past administrations have really basically turned a blind eye to these by America rules, as, as you say, are, are quite old. One has uh, been on the books since 1933. Another one is from 1982. Uh, and have certain definitions of what uh, constitutes an American-made product. So example for steel, as you mentioned, um, the older law says that uh, steel has to, quote, be substantially transformed, um, unquote, in the United States. And then more recently, in 1982, the definition was made even stricter, so that steel um, actually has to be melted and poured in the United States, which uh, reflects production methods at that time, but um, really don't reflect more modern methods of manufacturing.
1: So what do you want to do now, then? What's the big wrinkle that that we've got here in, in what makes something an American product or not?
0: Well, that's the problem is that it still goes by these old definitions. So, actually, a lot of American companies, there's one I mentioned, uh, California Steel Industries, which employs a thousand people, they actually don't uh, fit the America made uh, definition because they import cheaper slabs of steel from overseas and then convert it in the United States, which is, again, a more modern method of producing steel, even though all their production facilities are here in the United States. But again, because they don't qualify, they can't um, apply for certain government contracts or uh, procurement projects, so it's, it's actually a bit problematic and could be even more so for the Trump administration um, once they roll out their plans to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure, which will also be bound by these Buy American Rules, which could be hard to meet for a lot of companies that are actually here in the United States.
1: Why, why is that? Is that because there's not that we don't have enough um, steel products? And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's not just steel that's affected, right? It's other products as well. But, uh, is it because we, America just doesn't have the capacity now to, to fulfill it, or doesn't have the expertise, or doesn't have the best products? I mean, what's what's the holdup here from that perspective?
0: Yeah, no, for steel in particular, the slabs of steel that are imported here are cheaper, and a lot of the mills here don't actually produce the slabs of steel. They produce other kinds of sort of more raw uh, materials than made into more finished products. That, again, was sort of the old way of producing steel. and. There's not a lot of factories here that produce just these slabs of steel that then companies in the U.S. can turn into steel sheets or, or coils or other kinds of products. So they import these from overseas and the costs are, are also lower. So um, a lot of companies, even oil and, and energy companies, have written to the Commerce Department actually warning the Trump administration that there could be a lack of supplies, it could increase costs costs for projects. So that means certain building and, and construction projects could actually be delayed or cancelled altogether.
1: That wall's looking more and more difficult to build down on the Mexico border, isn't it? Um,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Would border tax adjustments play into this at all? I mean, the whole idea that American companies are getting a, a pardon the pun, raw deal uh, on all of this. And so here we are talking about make American products with American goods. Wouldn't that change the the, the pricing at all if, if suddenly foreign goods were more expensive to import, like these steel slabs?
0: Yeah, no, that would definitely uh, increase the, the cost of importing such products. But again, the other problem is just supply. I mean, there are certain things that other countries either make better or, or do more cheaply because perhaps they have you know certain um, natural resources or, or other materials in their uh, country that are more readily available to, to make certain products that the U.S. just doesn't have or is not efficient to produce here. So even. if the costs start to balance out, you still have a problem of supply.
3: So Gina, also earlier this week, uh, Trump signed uh, the Higher American Initiative, which is basically uh, was including a review of the h uh, 1B visas for highly skilled foreign workers. This has been um, an issue for a lot of companies, particularly Silicon Valley companies like Google and and Facebook, et cetera, that that rely on these visas. What happened? What did he do? Did he really limit the amount of visas or uh, did did he basically kind of punt on that?
0: Yeah, it's more of um, a review of the program. Like a lot of his other executive orders, they don't actually. change anything and more uh, require the various uh, federal agencies that are involved in the H-1B process, whether it's the Labor Department and others, to review the programs, look for um, areas of fraud and abuse, Um, and for ways to reform the program. Um, They argue that uh, this is being taken advantage of by certain companies to bring workers from overseas but pay them uh, less than American workers get, and so, you know, cheapening... Yeah,
3: Walt Disney, for example, I think was was held up as uh, one culprit that, you know, laid off a bunch of call center workers and then um, used... um, consultants and, and others from India I believe to, to fill their positions
0: yeah now and um, and and Indian companies like Tata were also called out uh, for potential abuse of the program. So but there's a lot of things that Trump can't really do on his own through an executive order. It really has to be done administratively by these agencies or through Congress. Um, Like one of the things Trump wants to do is to turn this into a more sort of merit based system and really ensure that uh, the people who are being hired are have these skills that are hard to find in the U.S., but on top of that, that they are being paid um, a, a comparable wage, and they're not being uh, paid less than American workers. I've got
1: to say, this, this sounds like the first time he's ever stood up for the foreigner. <laughs> Pay the <laughs> yeah, foreigners more money. Way, yeah. <laughs> um, but let's, let's, let's just stand back a little bit. So it's, it's the H-1B visa he's going after particularly in, 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 in this round, right, which gives out 65,000 visas a year. That, that, that's it's almost irrelevant. For, for a president to be focused, okay, he focused on companies that are, high, that are laying off 300 people, 800 people a few months ago. But to focus this much attention on 65,000 visas a year strikes me as, as way out of sync with what actually needs to be done.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, and um, there's, you know, a lot of times, like four times as as many applicants for that program than are are actually given out. So most people who apply don't actually get these visas. Uh, But this has been um, something that Trump has been pitching for a while. It's also a target of a lot of conservative Republicans who feel like it's also being taken advantage of. And, you know, he could be also sort of taking his... Cues off of that. Um, I mean, he is targeting also sort of uh, lower um, skilled jobs in, in terms of his, his crackdown on illegal immigrants and, and just increasing border security. So he's, he's sort of trying to target both ends of the barbell. But you're right, in, in terms of the actual numbers, this isn't as, as big of a problem as he thinks it is. So,
3: Gina, all of this kind of um, backtracking. We're starting to see signs that maybe not all is going well. And one area, and Anthony, you can speak to this, is in bank stocks. I mean, banks kind of went crazy. The shares went up when Trump was elected. And now we're starting to see them come down again. What's going on and what do you think is happening?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's it's a lot of things that, that Gina has been mentioning. So you've got um, a fair degree of uncertainty about where policy is going anyway at the beginning of any administration. Um, over here. But also, you you have seen a a series of Bigger problems come up in the past month or so. So stepping back, you know, banks from the beginning, from the time he got elected, Donald Trump got elected in November, up until say sometime in mid-February, banks were on a tear. I think Bank of America, which is one of the most troubled banks in the crisis, of course, was up fifty percent. Goldman was up forty percent or more. Banks in general up by almost a third, looking at various indices. They've all come down ten to 5- seven to fifteen percent now, depending on which bank you're looking at, and. And the reason is, I think, you know, investors are beginning to look at various issues. So starting with Obamacare, they look at that and think, okay, so a Republican run Washington where you've got the Republicans in charge of the executive and both branches of legislative, they can't get a reform of Obamacare done. So how are they going to get anything done on, on tax reform or, or on various other projects, infrastructure, anything else that uh, ref, uh, overhauling reforms that Gina's been on and talked about as well in the past? So that's really got... I mean, that, that hit bank stocks a lot because banks really, you know, if they can cut taxes, if they can get um, uh, fewer reforms uh, to the way they operate, then their the earnings are going to go up even if revenue doesn't grow. But what we've seen really from, from earnings so far in the past week or so is that earnings aren't really growing that much. Um, trading revenue got a bit better for most banks but that's about it and if you look at some of the biggest uh, lenders they're not their lending was pretty much flat in the quarter now in part that is because just you know companies are waiting to see what happens but also i think as you see obamacare not working out and as you see various international crises Uh, come online. I mean, just this week we had North Korea's getting worse and worse and the administration can't even work out which which way its it's aircraft carriers are going. So this gives a lot of pause to the markets in general and to bank stocks in particular, which uh, are very heavily, of course, tracked to how the economy performs.
3: So Gina, have you seen much of that reflected in Washington?
0: Yeah, there's definitely less and less optimism about uh, some of these things being pushed through. Um, Just recently, as Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told the Financial Times in an interview that uh, the tax reform bill that everyone's been eagerly waiting for um, probably won't be done uh, by the August recess for Congress, and a lot of experts think that it may not be done until possibly early next year and could not be reformed, but just a plain old tax cut um, package, which Congress is is actually very good at passing. So uh, the hopes are are dwindling for um, any real big changes to come about.
3: All right, Gina, thank you so much for joining us again. We appreciate it. I'm sure you'll be back on soon as all of this unfolds. Thanks, guys. All right, let's return to the subject of banks. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they reported their earnings earlier this week. One of the things that really surprised me was how lackluster of a performance Goldman Sachs turned in. This seems just kind of an outlier. So, Anthony, what's going on with Goldman Sachs? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, on one level, it kind of fits into what we we're talking about that the, in the last segment that um, politics is having a big role in how, Uh, the economy and uh, banks in particular are performing. So you see a bank like Goldman come in with a headline figure that looked quite decent, uh, but it missed earnings estimates. But they have this big accounting gain, as all firms do now, for how to account for um, stock-based compensations. they stripped that out, and they uh, had a return on equity of below 9%. Now, 10% is where we think banks really need to...
3: And have they ever hit uh, a a level that low before? Oh, yeah. They've been low before, during the crisis and afterwards. Post-crisis. Up and down,
1: yeah. But, you know, considering that this is meant to be uh, the first quarter is meant to be the first one where trading was meant to take off quite well because of um, Donald Trump coming in and creating the so-called animal spirits that we hate talking about. But we'll accept it for now uh, and, and getting investors more interested and seeing more uh, more enthusiasm about markets and everything else. Trading was meant to take off. We saw that from Jeffries, one of the small banks uh, a couple of months ago, reported a real huge increase after a very, very bad first quarter last year. And that's what we were looking for. All the banks complained this time last year that the first quarter quarter of 2016 was a bad quarter. So many things were going wrong and their trading revenues were down. This quarter, we saw steady improvements at the three big banks, Citi, Bank of America and JP Morgan. They're all up about 20% in their fixed income trading. You think currencies, bonds, that kind of thing. Goldman comes along and it drops 2%. Doesn't sound like much, but compared to the others, it's pretty bad. Then Morgan Stanley comes along the day later, and its revenue is up 96% in trading. You think, well, that I mean, how is that even possible? Well, partly it's because Morgan Stanley was restructuring its unit and a year or two ago had had rather more trouble quarters, so it's recovering a bit from that. But also, considering how bad last, the quarter was last year. It really does show that that you know, there's only one firm that couldn't recover, and that was Goldman. And even on the call this week, the incoming CFO, Marty Chavez, said, yes, we, we, we didn't navigate the quarter particularly well. And that is basically Wall Street speak for we took a wrong position, mm-hmm. uh, we, um, we didn't have the right inventory, we thought the market would go the other way. And really, it just calls into question Goldman's strategy. Now, Morgan Stanley gets this return on equity of 10% flat, right where um, the CEO, James Goldman, wants the company to be at least. Basically showing to everyone, look, our strategy is working. We're getting our trading fixed. We've got this wealth management and banking product that's doing well. Trust us, we're getting there. We have been for several quarters. Goldman Sachs, on the other hand, has its return on equity go pretty low. And everyone's saying, hang on, you're the only ones where fixed income trading didn't work too well. You were meant to be the best at that business a few years ago. You keep telling us that you're going to improve, that you're going to pick up market share as others, especially European banks, leave the business. And we just keep seeing you underperform. What on earth is going on? And that is why Goldman Stock has fallen a fair bit this year. It's one of the worst performers in the Dow. So what is
3: going on? Because it seems like they have all their cards are right in place well I
1: mean to give them a little bit of leeway here they are very big players in foreign exchange for example um, and so are some of the others as well. But you know, if you're Goldman Sachs and you don't have the big lending business that J.P. Morgan or Bank of America does or Citi does, then there's not as much flow business as it's called you're going to get from your big commercial clients. So you're really li- relying on institutional investors. And if they don't come through as much, then you're going to suffer more than um, the regular flow that, that you see every day as part of a, a company business or uh, corporate business. Um, they also complained about commodities. Uh, less, I'm less convinced by that. Yes, I think. Maybe they had some issues with physical commodities that other banks don't really uh, deal with anymore. But they also complained about about credit not doing too well in in trading. And every single other firm talked about increased volatility, more client trading, um, that everyone was getting more engaged. And that really was, made Goldman Sachs look like it was, it was really not on the ball. And I think that's the worry that people have now. They're by no means an awful player. It may well be just an outlier, but we've had several quarters on and off now where Goldman's strategy of picking up market share from those leaving the business has been called into question. And Morgan Stanley's results this week really hammer that one home and rub Goldman's face in it.
3: Yeah, I, I loved your column, rubbing uh, Goldman's face in it. All right, well, Anthony, thanks very much for that. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony Curry, as well as our guests, Peter Tau Larson and Gina Chan. Hats off as well to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes and do share your opinions about our show. Thanks for joining us.